Why don't you open your Bibles with me uh, to Acts chapter 2. Uh, we're going to be looking at verses 22 through 41, basically the, the remainder of Peter's sermon today. Uh, and, and here's what um, I want us to be considering today. It's kind of weird to preach a sermon about a sermon. I just want you to know that I realized as I was doing it, it's, uh, as, as Evan said to me, that's very meta. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and I think that, uh, that what we need to focus on uh, is as we look at this beautiful sermon, it's really the first Christian sermon. The day of Pentecost has arrived. Uh, Christ's followers have been, have been filled and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Uh, Jesus told them to wait for the coming of the Spirit. The Spirit has come. Uh, there's been a supernatural event in which, in which these, these men and women have become filled with the Holy Spirit. God's presence uh, has been made manifest. And, and they are ushered out into the streets by the Spirit, um, calling, actually empowering them to become the witnesses that Jesus said they would become. And remember, they were declaring the glory of God, the testimony, the witness of God, speaking in, in tongues of other languages that they didn't know. And all of the, the men and women that had gathered in Jerusalem uh, to worship uh, on Pentecost are, are hearing uh, the gospel presented to them in their own language, and they don't even know what to make of it. They're, they're amazed and they're perplexed. Um, some of them think that the people are drunk. And Peter gets up and addresses them and says, hey, listen, uh, we're, not, we're not drunk, as some of you are saying, uh, but what you are actually experiencing is the fulfillment of Scripture. And the fulfillment of Scripture uh, is all wrapped up in this one person, Jesus. Now, here's the thing about this sermon. When you try to actually break down the sermon and just do like a normal exegesis of a sermon, preaching a sermon about a sermon, uh, it can get really weird because what is powerful about the sermon is not necessarily the words that Peter speaks, although it's very biblical, it's very orthodox, it's very Christ-centered, but the power of the sermon is that the presence of Christ is manifest in Peter as he's preaching by his Holy Spirit. We have to remember, this is the thing that I want us to understand as a church, uh, and I believe that God has uniquely called us at this time to be a witness to the city of Portland, that we are in a post-Christian city. I have a son at a high school in Portland where he doesn't have a single Christian friend there. This speaks to the culture in which we live, and we have a, a responsibility placed upon us as well as a privilege to be witnesses to the reality of Christ. But here's what happens, is that we live in an age, as Michael Green said, uh, that is dubious about any settled truths, does not accept any objective moral standard, and is allergic to authority. It is also an incredibly narcissistic age that starts at the top down in our government all the way down to the, the normal person at home on a daily basis. We live in a narcissistic age, which means that we are intensely preoccupied with self. And all of these realities actually create, I think, a bit of, of nervousness when it comes to actually witnessing to the reality of Jesus because we think that, that modern sensible people will never believe what we believe. It's so funny that we believe that because you're sitting here. In fact, the thing that you think others won't believe is something that 
I would guess for the majority of you, believed at some point. So why is it that we can, are convinced that the gospel, there's no way that, that Jesus will save that person or that person when he was more than willing to save you? And do you consider yourself a foolish person or a moron that, to believe something so simplistic, so archaic, the idea that God came to earth and, the, and took on the form of humanity and, and lived the perfect life that we couldn't live and upon the cross of Calvary carried the weight of human brokenness upon himself, actually freeing us from the penalty of sin when we place our faith in him because death could not keep him, but that he raised from the dead on the third day and then ascended to the right hand of the Father and sent his Holy Spirit to dwell with those who put their faith in him. Just even stating it that way, if you were to actually analyze everything I just said, that's pretty crazy. But why do we believe it? Why do we believe it? Why have we cast our hope upon this, this reality of Jesus Christ as the Savior of mankind? And I think that we need to remember that Jesus himself said, when we look at a sermon, we're not looking for, how did Peter do it? It's so masterful. You know, there's no explanation. There's no theology of atonement. He just said, this Jesus whom you crucified. Doesn't explain even that, that Jesus was the sin bearer of the world. But why did 3,000 people get saved? Was it because of Peter's ability to articulate truth in a way that was compelling or convincing? We live in an age that is dubious about settled truths. It's true. We do live in an age that does not accept any objective moral standard, that is allergic to authority, that is narcissistic, but that doesn't override the fact that the God of the universe says, Jesus, if I be lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. See, I think that the issue in the church is that we have moved away from the simplicity of the gospel of God's incredible love for us, revealed through the person of Jesus. We have moved away from the power of, a of, of real witness, the belief that there is something different about our, our lives that other people would want. And what I want for Door of Hope is for us to grow in our witness of the gospel. And what's so encouraging about Peter's sermon is not his eloquence, but it's his absolute trust in the presence of the Christ he's talking about and his belief that God will draw to himself who he will draw. It takes a lot of pressure off of us when it comes to evangelism. I think that we have fallen into the trappings that we need to have all of our arguments airtight. But where have we ever been told in Scripture uh, that we are called to argue people into the kingdom of heaven? It's fascinating. Uh, years ago, I watched an incredible debate between two brilliant minds, uh, John Lennox, uh, who, is, uh, who is a scientist and a Christian apologetist, and it was in Scotland, and he was debating against Christopher Hitchens, who's now passed uh, who died of cancer a few years back, and Hitchens being a very famous, uh, very outspoken atheist, extremely charming, extremely articulate. Uh, and uh, I would argue that both of those men have this strange charisma and, uh, and graciousness, actually, even, in their ability to debate one another. And at the end of the debate, it was so fascinating, uh, Christopher Hitchens actually concedes to the audience that John Lennox clearly won the debate. But you know what's fascinating about that debate? 
What happens at the end of Pentecost? At the very end of Peter's sermon, it says, and when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Not a single person in the debate between John Lennox and Christopher Hitchens stood up and said, what must I do to be saved? Christopher Hitchens, an atheist, said, you won the debate, but he still left an atheist. And I think that this tells us something about the reality uh, and the futility of human intellect and its ability to save the lost. Because the only way that the, save, the lost get saved is if God draws them, illuminates their blindness, and reveals to them the truth of the gospel. Doesn't negate the responsibility of that person to respond to the yes that God has declared over them in Jesus, but it still shows that unless God brings vision, unless there is a reliance upon the Holy Spirit, both in our witness and in the Spirit's ability to draw, there is no power in what is preached. I don't care how smart your argument is. Uh, so this is what I want us to be thinking about when we look at Peter's sermon. Because the one thing that I can tell you is that there is a whole variety of sermons in the book of Acts. There is not fleshed out theology. Uh, there, is, there is a singular focus upon the loving, resurrected person of Jesus in all of the sermons. And what's so powerful about it is that they preach about Jesus with such urgency and such conviction that what draws the lost into the community of faith is that they preach, that is the whole community of faith, preaches with an absolute belief that Jesus is with them by his spirit. And I believe that that is the key to successful evangelism today and is what is missing in the church. I think we spend so much time trying to, trying to comprehend with our minds what the gospel is all about, trying to get every nuance worked out that we end up falling into the trappings of Galatians, perfecting in the flesh what God has begun in the spirit. I'm not talking about dumbing down the gospel. I'm not talking about the importance of understanding the scriptures and growing in our understanding of the scriptures, but I think we have forgotten the power of the simple testimony of one who has been transformed by the gospel. When I got saved, I didn't understand what atonement was. I don't even know if I'd ever heard that word. I just believe that Jesus was the son of God, that he really died for me, that he really loved me, and that if I put my faith in him, he would forgive me of my sins and give me his spirit, and I would be a new creation. This is why Jesus said, unless you come to me like little children, you'll by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And so I think that this is important for us to understand that the gospel is always simple enough for a child to understand and deep enough for a theologian to drown in. And we need to recognize that our, uh, our call as a church is to be witnesses to the living presence of Christ. We're not here to preach uh, some empty ideology. We're not here to preach some moral code. We are here to preach the presence of the living Christ who is with us by his spirit. So let's hope that he's with us right now because I'm a little tired. All right. <laughs> You're like, that beginning was so good. And then everything after that, it was like the spirit just departed. Uh, that would be really horrible. Okay, 
So what is the content of Peter's message? Well, as Cameron looked at the beginning of the message where Peter breaks down that beautiful prophecy in, uh, in Joel, uh, where Peter begins all of the sermon, it's, it's actually a very focused and very concise uh, discussion about who Jesus is. And first of all, he says, listen, listen, you guys, he talks about Jesus as the fulfillment of scripture, that all of scripture is pointing to Christ. And he says, listen, what you're experiencing here right now, this supernatural event that has occurred, you hearing the gospel of God declared in your own language, you have gathered here to Jerusalem. This event is what the, what the prophet Joel declared. You have, you have experienced, you are experiencing the coming of the Holy Spirit. This is the fulfillment of Scripture. And then he says, and all of it is wrapped up in this person, Jesus. And you'll find the phrase three times in this text. He uses the phrase, this Jesus. Speaking not of a Jesus who is gone, but of a Jesus who is present. And what's powerful is here in verse 22, he begins with, his humanity. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, declaring a historical person from an actual place. And then he says this about him. This is fascinating. He says, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. So notice Peter is calling their attention to a story that they are familiar with. The fame of Jesus had spread throughout the known land. In fact, we have in the Gospel of John, remember the Greeks came all the way to Jerusalem to try to get Jesus to come with him uh, back, uh, back to, to Greece to, to talk to their to talk to their philosophers. Uh, and so the, the reputation of Jesus had expanded through the known world, and he was he was noted as a man whom God had worked through. And so Peter begins with something really profound and something that actually uh, the church had to wrestle through uh, as, as the doctrine of the incarnation developed uh, to protect the church from falling into the trappings of heresy was to actually try to uh, nail down the reality that Jesus is both man and God. He isn't God cloaked in humanity, but that the God who is unchanging actually changed. He became something he was not before. He actually took upon himself humanity and will continue to dwell within real humanity, real human flesh. Uh, and this is what our creeds declare. And it, it all begins here on this first Christian sermon. Peter begins with the humanity of Christ. Why does he begin with his humanity? Well, first of all, I think it's important to note that Peter doesn't just begin with the cross, uh, but he begins with the incarnation, with the life of Christ, because every event in the life of Jesus from his birth to his ascension has saving significance. I think that's really important for us to remember. But what is he pointing out here? One of the things that drew me to the gospel was actually the humanity of the Son of God. When people talked about God, I always thought of God in a very detached way. Like, I believed that there was a God, but I didn't know if he was personal, and I definitely didn't think he was present. Uh, and I definitely didn't think that he could possibly understand or even would care to understand my flawed, broken humanity, because a big component of who we are as people is defined by our sinfulness, by our brokenness, by our inability to actually 
to achieve what it is that we desire to achieve. We all feel this, this incredible pressure upon our lives that we could be better than we currently are. Isn't that true? And what made the humanity of Christ so appealing to me is that he was a man, but he was a man that was different than me. He was man as God intended man to be. It's one of the reasons that people hated him so much, because he was sinless humanity. He was humanity fully in touch with the Father. He was man filled with the Spirit under total control, so controlled by the Spirit that he was without sin. He was the Son of God. And I think that this is important because his humanity tells us, Peter begins, that this Jesus, who he's going to declare to them, not just as a man, but also as God himself, is one that we can trust. In fact, Hebrews develops this idea, and so does uh, the writer of Hebrews, and so does the writings of Paul, really develops the importance of the humanity of Christ when, Paul's, when the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 through 18, therefore he had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. It wasn't enough for God to identify with our humanity. I have always said that God through Jesus identified with our lowest point, our sin. When Jesus was baptized, on the day of his baptism, remember, it was a baptism of repentance, a repentance of sins, a repentance of actually walking away from the true God. The heavens opened up when Jesus was baptized by John. John didn't want to baptize him. And when the heavens opened after he was baptized, the dove descended upon Jesus. It's when his ministry, I believe, became truly spirit-filled and empowered. Uh, but the voice from heaven spoke, and it was the Father, and he said, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. What was he pleased with? He was pleased with Jesus' identification with man's sinfulness. And I think that this is a powerful component for us because nothing brings people to faith in Christ like the realization that we don't have a God who doesn't understand us. We don't have a God who is detached from us, but we have a God who understands us on every level. He understands our sin better than we do because he was able to see it all the way through to the end, which Peter's going to, to uh, point us toward in his continuation of discussion. So he begins with the humanity of Christ, but a humanity that is empowered by God. This humanity was unique for he was... He was empowered, attested to by God with mighty works and wonders and signs. So you know about this Jesus because the work that God did through him, actually the fame of him spread throughout the land because the spirit-filled man cannot be ignored. I think that's important for us to mark. But Peter goes on and says, not just, he doesn't just talk about his humanity. That's just one verse. He then moves into his death in verse 23. He says, this Jesus speaking about a Jesus who seems to be there, a Jesus who seems to be present by the power of the Spirit, he says, delivered up, and this is fascinating, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So he says, this Jesus was delivered up. Delivered up for what? Delivered over uh, to the hands of those who are against him and ultimately crucified uh, by the Romans and put to death as a common criminal for declaring the Jews accused him of claiming to be one with God, blaspheming against the Torah, against, against the sacred scriptures, making himself one with God. He says, this Jesus, you guys know the story, is basically what Peter's saying. He says he was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So 
Jesus' deliverance over to the hands of his enemies to be put to death was actually part of God's plan. God knew it was coming. It was a part of his plan. In fact, God was willing to take the sinfulness of humanity and utilize humanity's sinful plan to actually fulfill his good plan to actually redeem people from sin. Fascinating. He says, but look what Peter does. He doesn't pull any punches because right out of the gate, he says, you know about this Jesus and this Jesus was delivered according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And I guess the listeners at that point are like, oh, good, it was God's plan. And then he says, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. The gospel must always contain with it the reality of the brokenness of humanity. There is no need for a savior if we have nothing to be saved from. One of the things that must have been going through the minds of the listeners of Peter is, at this point is like, what do you mean we crucified him? We don't even live here. We weren't even here for the event. But Peter is quick to show that the guilt um, of the death of Jesus lays upon the heads, not just of those that were listening that day, but actually lies upon all of humanity. All of humanity, the sinfulness of humanity is what brought about the death of Christ. But here's the good news, is that because of the sinfulness of humanity, God utilizes the broken ugliness of humanity to actually bring about its redemption. So we are both responsible for his death, but at the same time, God has utilized it to bring about freedom from that responsibility. It's powerful that Jesus is both the judge and the judged in our place. He is the one for the many and the many in the one. But notice here that Peter doesn't actually spell it out. He doesn't explain even what the significance of the cross is. Paul himself said that the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. He says, we preach nothing but Christ and him crucified. That the cross is an offense for those that were listening that did not come to faith that day. It offended them because what Peter is saying is that God needed to die for your sin and God died because of your sin. And so anyone that ex experiences the salvation of Christ, the love of God is so great. It says the kindness of God leads us to repentance, that God loves us so much that he is not content to leave us in our sin, but he is willing to meet us in it. But his meeting us in it is also the means by which he reveals that we are sinners in need of forgiveness. And I think that one of the things that is so hard for people to accept the gospel, I mean, we say it's free, so why is it so hard for people to accept it? Because we're saying that there is something fundamentally wrong with them. That we're saying that humanity is incapable of saving itself. We aren't offering an ideology. We aren't offering an ethical code. If you live like this, then God will accept you. What we're saying is that God in his infinite love through Jesus Christ has accepted you. Now live like this. And so here we see his death is declared. The apostolic preaching of Acts did not seem to stress any particular doctrine of atonement. He doesn't give him an explanation of what happened on the cross. He just says, you know that he died on the cross, and I just want you to know it was God's plan and you're responsible for it. And they're like, what does that mean? I'm not going to tell you. I don't need to. I'm going to trust the Holy Spirit to reveal that to you. I think it's fascinating because the writers uh, within uh, within 
the, the epistles uh, really begin to delve into what is the meaning of the cross. And you can tell that Paul is wrestling with that even in Galatians 3, 13, when he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Remember, Peter is addressing those who are of the Jewish faith. Deuteronomy declared that anyone that is hung on a tree is cursed by God. And so Peter is, is playing upon, uh, and I, I think that he is speaking in the power of the Spirit, by the sp- being a conduit for the Spirit, but also trusting the Spirit to bring to remembrance and to illuminate the minds of his listeners to, the, to the, how Jesus has fulfilled their own scriptures. Look what he goes on to say. He starts with his humanity, moves toward his death, and then follows it up with his resurrection. This is a key component of all apostolic preaching in the book of Acts, because what were they? They were witnesses to the, to the they lived with Jesus, they, they learned from Jesus, they experienced the death of Jesus, but they were witnesses to his resurrection. And he goes on to say, God raised him up in verse 24 through 32. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, and here he's quoting, uh, he's quoting from Psalm 16, and he's attributing this psalm to, to David, and he's utilizing the Old Testament. Remember, by two witnesses uh, is a testimony confirmed, and he is using the testimony of Scripture and the witness of, of the, the eyewitness reality of him and the other followers of Jesus that actually saw him after he was raised from the dead. They call this the Jerusalem factor. How did the gospel explode in the new world? It's because those who were followers of Jesus saw him alive after his death. The resurrection was God's stamp of approval upon the completed work of Jesus. And I love this because he utilizes scripture. He says, David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your holy ones see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. And then I love Peter's exposition of this text. He says, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he, is both, that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us this day. So he's saying, clearly this can't be about David, the one who wrote this, because David died. So David then, and, hit, and, and I love what Peter does under the influence of the Spirit, um, being therefore a prophet. So David then becomes a prophet where the psalm itself is a prophetic declaration of what is coming. And knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Notice, the major emphasis of the preaching was, was on the one who broke the power of death and rose from the dead. Once again, he doesn't talk about the, uh, about the theology of resurrection. He just simply utilizes an Old Testament passage, says that David clearly was not talking about himself, for he is dead and buried. We have his tomb here today. But this Jesus, he was looking forward to the promised Messiah who would reign on the throne of David forever. He is Israel's promised Messiah. This Jesus is the one because God brought him 
up from, the, from, from Hades. He did not allow his flesh to see corruption. He is that fulfillment. And I think what's so powerful about this is once again, what was compelling them to believe Peter at this point? Was it his strong uh, intellectual case? Did he lay out, was he, was he pulling a Lee Strobel, the case for Christ right here? Nothing against that book, but he's not laying out any kind of evidence. He's just, he's just simply saying, I saw him alive. The only thing they could do was either believe Peter or not believe Peter. But they, what were they experiencing that was making them believe him? They saw the spirit manifestation through God's people as they're proclaiming the glory of God in languages they didn't know and they don't even understand what's happening. And Peter is giving them an explanation of what's happening. And he isn't giving them a full, robust explanation of the theology of atonement. What he's doing is simply declaring the facts as a witness, a faithful witness. And what was compelling to the listeners was not what Peter was saying, but with the conviction in which he said it. He said it with power. He said it by the power of the Spirit. And the Spirit was drawing the listeners to this reality. And he goes on and declares, he moves from his life to his death to his resurrection, and then closes with his, with his exaltation. He says, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this. Here's the key. He says, listen, being exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. I'm giving you an explanation of what you cannot explain right now. The Holy Spirit is the revelation that Jesus really was raised from the dead. Because what did Jesus say to his disciples himself on the night of his betrayal? He said, it is good that I go to the Father because when I go to the Father, I will send to you another helper, the Spirit of truth, and he will come to you. And he will guide you into all truth and bring to remembrance all that I have said. And he says, if you love me, keep my commandments. And, and we, my Father and I, will come to you and we will make our home within you. And so what they are experiencing is... Peter has become literally the temple of God. Jesus said, greater works than these will you do because I go to the Father. And now Jesus, by his Holy Spirit, is literally dwelling in those 120 or so that have experienced the power of the Spirit, the filling of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And it's not just the proclamation of Peter, but it is the whole community of faith, that 120 and their witness, the supernatural witness to the reality of Jesus. It doesn't say that they were healing people. It doesn't say they were raising people from the dead. There was a recognition that God had showed up in a powerful, tangible way, and the love of Christ was being made manifest so that what Peter was saying was compelling to those who are listening. It was the whole community together declaring this reality. And he says, for David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, quoting from Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And then I love this because he went from the humanity of Christ and he ends with the deity of Christ. He says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you have crucified. So there's the sermon. We're done. So here's the, here's the thing that I want us to, to get from this. Because when you look at the response, when you see his salvation come, it says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? 
And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Spirit for the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, everyone for whom the Lord calls to himself. Notice, he is recognizing even there that it is God who is calling and drawing and it is he who is simply yielding and confessing. And he says, and with many other words, he bore witness, didn't argue, and continued to exhort them, encourage them, call them to repent and save yourselves from this crooked generation. Do we live in a crooked generation today, church? We do. Are we willing to actually call people to repentance and to follow Jesus as the hope and salvation of their lives? Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received the word were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. 3,000 people saved. Now, if you were to just analyze that sermon based upon what is stated and you remove the Holy Spirit component out of it, it actually has a lot of big holes in it intellectually, a lot. Uh, it doesn't explain many doctrines that actually have been explained over the last 2,000 years through the study of the scriptures. I mean, keep in mind, Jesus had only been raised in the dead about 50 days. So it's not like they're going to create a systematic theology in the first, in, in, in the first uh, 10 days after Jesus' resurrection. What they knew was what they experienced and who it is they had followed and who it is that he was based upon what they saw. And that witness was what it took to bring about the salvation of 3,000 people. I want to share with you... Uh, a couple of stories and examples of this because I, I, I've been trying to get my head around this because I think that one of the problems, one of the hangups for the church and our willingness to actually be witnesses to the power of the gospel, it, it is caught up in this idea that we need to explain every little factor to people before they're willing to come to faith. And it's just simply not the way the gospel works. And what I, what I said to you guys a couple weeks ago when I preached on the day of Pentecost and the power of the Holy Spirit is that we have got to learn to give the Spirit space. We have got to learn what it means to be a people who trust God to be the one who actually does the saving because I think we enter into that Messiah complex where we think the reason people won't come to faith in Christ is because I'm not convincing enough to compel them. You're not. That's true. It's actually, it's a good it's good for you to understand that. But that understanding should bring you to a place where you yield yourself to Jesus that he might empower you to be a true witness to him, that there might be something tangible about your life that actually causes people to want what you have. And I think that the power of that is actually when the witness is done as a community of faith. Let me just share with you a few examples of, of people getting saved in the most unusual ways. There's a story of a, of a young woman who got radically saved and began to preach in San Francisco the gospel. And a lawyer um, who was an atheist uh, was, was, saw this girl preaching in this park and walked up to her to challenge her. Uh, and to actually speak some reason into her foolish proclamation. And every time he would give her an argument of, of why she shouldn't believe what she believed, she would simply state to him John 3.16. So he would finish his like, diatribe and anger of all the stupidity and how dare she go out in public and proclaim this foolishness that science is clearly dispelled. Let's move away from this archaic belief system. She would say, for God so loved the world that he gave 
his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Again and again, she said that to him in gentleness, never getting upset at his tirades against her, and he left in fury. But that night, he couldn't sleep. Weird. And the words that she spoke to him over and over rung through his head, and he could not rest and began to believe the very thing that she stated. And he came back to her the next day and said, I can't get these words out of my head. And he prayed to receive Christ with her the next day. That's one testimony of millions of testimonies like it. My testimony of coming to faith. When I came to faith, I didn't have a preacher preach to me. I just simply started reading through the Gospels. Do you think I understood even 1% of what I read? Not really. But there was just something so beautiful, so magnetic about the person of Jesus. The one thing that struck me is that Jesus was nothing like my friends who were constantly criticizing Christianity. The one thing that struck me was that Jesus was way more awesome, way more powerful, and at the same time, way more loving and gentle. How could he turn tables over um, in the temple courtyards and chase people out with whips and the next scene be ha have the little children, toddlers and babies on his, on his lap and say, this is what the kingdom of heaven is going to be filled with? How could he have nails hammered into his hands and say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing because that's not what I would say if someone hammered a nail into my hand. And I began to be struck by the power in the person of Jesus. The lawyer who converted, me who converted on my, on, on my apartment floor, these realities are wrapped up in, this, in, a, in, a, in a singular reality that's always the same for every conversion, no matter how different the story. It's always wrapped up in the person of Christ. It's always wrapped up in God drawing people to his son by his spirit. My friend, Tim Schober, he's a guy that lives in Seattle, a uh, businessman. He was sharing with me how he came to faith. And him and his wife, when they were in college dating, went to a Seahawks game at the, at the Kingdom, the worst sporting building ever built in America uh, before it was blown up. And there at the Kingdom, a regular occurrence was this gentleman um, who used to dress up like Jesus, wear a crown of thorns, and what he would do is he would take a big cross that was on wheels and he'd walk around the kingdom with it. And, he would, and, and, it was, and he'd call people to repentance. And Tim was so annoyed because he wasn't a believer. He's like, Look, this guy's so ridiculous. How many of you are going to go out and get a Jesus costume and a cross and go preach around Portland? Some, I'm just waiting for someone in the back. I'm like, I actually do that. Um, <laughs> what's fascinating is I... I have been a, I've been a critic of those sorts of, I'm like, man, it's just like, oh, I don't like that that's representing my faith. But the thing is, is that this man, like the girl in the park, I, when Tim went up to him to accost him for what, for what he was doing, the man just looked up at him and, he's, and, he, and he's, Tim said that the man looked teary and just looked at him and said, Jesus loves you so much. And he just like, he was so mad, he just stormed away, but he could not get the man's words out of his head. And he came to faith the next week. I went once to Russia uh, with, <laughs> with this guy named Willie. And Willie showed up at the airport. I'd only been a believer for a year. And Willie showed up at the airport wearing a long sleeve t-shirt that says, Jesus saves. And then like, and then Jesus loves you in giant letters. And on the back, he says, Jesus saves from hell. And I was like, really? Like, I'm going to ride for the next 20 hours across the world with you in that shirt? Like, 
you don't have, like, Bibles seem to be sufficient. Like, why? But what struck me on that trip was like, would I ever wear that shirt? Probably not, but that's just because I'm vain. Um, uh, but what was fascinating, and I got to write, and I was like, well, he's so extreme. Like, man, it's such a zealot. And he was notorious for going to, to every pagan event in Seattle and like and just and wearing he'd wear sandwich boards he'd do the whole deal but he he did it because he really really believed that Jesus wants to save people and we can mock him for for his uh for the aggressiveness of getting out in public and wearing such incredibly intense but he actually did believe that that eternity was on the line he actually believed that God wants to save people, and if they reject the gospel, that they're going to end up eternally separated from him. And it horrified him. It freaked him out. He was like, I am not going to meet Jesus face to face and give him an explanation of why I didn't share the gospel. I will share the gospel with every person I meet. I don't care how foolish I seem. And his, and how could we, can we mock that? Because some of us will say, well, do you have to wear a t-shirt? No, but hey, have you ever shared anything? Have you ever invited someone to church? When I was in Russia with Willie, uh, the thing that I loved about him is as extreme as his t-shirts were, he was one of the most gentle human beings I've ever met in my life. And he really actually would weep over the lost. I watched the man weep over the lost. His brokenness for people's brokenness was, I, I've never, it's never been matched. He died of cancer a few years ago. Uh, but I remember ch- little Russian kids. We were like with a group and there's these little Russian kids around us in Tver. And Willie got down on his knees and he's like, he's like, how are you guys doing today? And they like started talking to him in Russia and he, Russian. He didn't speak any Russian. He's like, yeah, yeah, I know. He's like, but he loves you. It's fine. It's fine. He's like, he's like, I know, I know, little guy. He loves you so much. And just like, there was just, they were, kids were drawn to him like magnets. They could just tell. And in Russia, his, his witnessing t-shirts were in Russian. He, like he had them made before he went. <laughs> it was amazing. He is like a walking track. It was, it was incredible. But I saw people respond to the gospel. I remember I, on that trip to Russia, my first time ever leading someone to Christ, I had a, a Russian translator. This is how powerful the gospel is. This is how unpredictable the Holy Spirit is. This is how God is the one who cuts people to the heart when we're willing to be utilized conduits. I was a brand new believer. I've been a believer for a year. I hadn't even read the Bible in its entirety. And I, was, and I just felt emboldened by this experience of being on the other side of the world and people being so open to the gospel. And I was sharing with these two girls uh, the gospel as I understood it, which was very simplistic. Uh, and, and as I'm sharing my tra- like the translator, the, the two girls all of a sudden were staring at the translator and not at me. And I look over, and the translator's weeping. And all three girls prayed to receive Christ right there with me. And I was like, this is the coolest thing that's ever happened to me in my life. And it's like, there's nothing more exciting to see someone enter from death into life. Nothing will reinvigorate your faith like seeing people come to faith. And I think that this is the thing. is I think half the reason we get so bored with our Christianity is because we haven't entered into the exciting responsibility and privilege of being witnesses. And so what I want to call you guys today, because I went through the text, and Peter's sermon preaches itself. It talks about Jesus, talks about his life, talks about his death, talks about his resurrection, talks about his ascension, and then it gives forth his salvation. He says, listen, here's the reality. There's twofold promise. One is that Jesus removes the guilt 
and the shame and the brokenness of human existence, which we all feel deeply. He removes it when you put your faith in him. And that faith in him is not merely intellectual, but it is volitional as well. It actually changes the way that you act. And this is why the early church's altar call was not, raise your hands while everyone's heads are bowed so that you're not embarrassed because we love our Christianity secretive. Uh, no, the early altar call was come for repent, that is change your mind about who's going to be God in your life and be baptized. And baptism was an outward expression of an inward transformation. The coming forward to be baptized was, was the body responding to what the mind had come to believe and is settling into the heart. In fact, you always see those realities preached in the early church is faith, repentance, and baptism. And sometimes one or the other is missing, but they're always all assumed. To declare Jesus as Lord is to say that I'm not. The whole gospel's wrapped up in those three words. But I think that this is the powerful reality for us as a church. I want you guys to notice around you that there's, there's lots of, this room seats 900 people. We don't ever have, uh, I think like 850 or 870 or something. And, and, and we have a big church. Uh, but even at 500, 600 people in this room, there's a lot of empty seats. And the thing that I want as a pastor, I am not interested in church growth through transference. I am not interested in, in getting other people's members. Uh, in fact, I, it's the last thing I want. I do not want church connoisseurs at Door of Hope. I think that the early days, I think we've lost our way. Early on at Door of Hope, we were a small church, and I'm like, we can't actually continue as a church unless people get saved. And so I would encourage, if you were a part of Door of Hope in the early days, you remember I used to encourage you constantly, invite people to come Part of being a witness isn't the ability to explain. There's different giftings within the church. Some people have the ability to actually articulate the gospel really clearly and concisely. Other people have the gift of hospitality, just the ability to make people feel loved and cared for. All of us have the ability to say, come and see who it is that I believe, because the power of the gospel is found in the community. One of the most important components of our Sunday gatherings is a public witness to the gospel. If we don't ever invite the public in, we're not witnessing to anyone except each other. And what I would like to see at Door of Hope is for us to fill every seat with a non-believer because everyone in this room has someone that you know you need to invite in, to invite into the story, to come and witness what it is that you believe. Invite that friend that you work with to come and hear you sing when you worship next to them. Because I'm telling you, if we believe that God will draw people and we actually step out into faith and invite them to come in, you'll be amazed how people will be like, why didn't you invite me sooner? I'd love to come. You know, you'll be surprised. Will people actually turn you down or be offended by your Christianity? Sure, some people will. I think what you'll be surprised by if you actually begin to live confidently enough to at least invite them to come to church with you is actually how willing people are to come. I used to, in the early days, live right off of Hawthorne. I would invite people every time I went out to come to church, and people would always, almost always come. And I, I would say something like, if you don't come, I, I might die next week. No, I wouldn't say that. But uh, <laughs> I really need you to come. It's so important to me. I don't think I could live without this. I, I, you know, do it. And I, what I love about the book of Acts is actually how they would go to any measure to bring people. They were extreme. They would... Deal Moody's methods, we can mock him for being a, a, being a salesman, but I, I love that. 
How did Dale Moody get people to come to church? He got kids to come to church by bringing a donkey around Chicago and giving them candy. We, now, you would be arrested today. <laughs> Don't be that guy. <laughs> but the famous story of D.L. Moody going up to, a, up to a gentleman and says, sir, do you believe in Jesus Christ? And he says, that's none of your business. He says, absolutely my business. And he says, then you must be D.L. Moody. That's the reputation that I want us to have as a community of faith. Not as extreme beating people up, but inviting people into the love of Christ to come and experience what it is that we believe, giving space for the Holy Spirit to open up conversations and questions. We don't have to seal the deal. We don't have to lead someone to Christ at work the next day. I think that one thing I learned when I was in London is that we need to actually trust that the Spirit moves, and sometimes he takes time. I've seen people come to the door of hope for months before they actually came to a saving faith in Jesus. But we gotta begin by just inviting him. Come and see witnessing. I want us to be a church that witnesses to the gospel. I want to see the chairs filled with people that are exploring the gospel for the first time and experiencing the power of the witness of a community that really actually believes that Jesus is right here, right now. Because I don't know if you noticed again and again, whenever Peter talked about Jesus's work in the past, he always would condition that with the statement, this Jesus because we're not talking about a Jesus who died and was buried 2,000 years ago. We're talking about a Jesus who died 2,000 years ago and rose from the dead on the third day and ascended to the right hand of the Father and is present with us right now by his spirit. Do we believe that, church? Will you invite someone? Think of a family member. Think of a friend. Let's be the witness that God has called us to be. If we're not being a witnessing church, we're not being the church. God loves you. The gospel is about how much Jesus loves you. He loves you. May the love of Christ compel you to draw other people into that love. Eternity is at stake. People are lost and broken. Why would we leave them in that lostness? That is not loving. Let's invite them to come and experience Jesus for themselves. Amen?